Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley. Welcome you to a very special episode, episode 89 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. Uh, this is special in multiple ways. We've got a great cast of guests lined up ready to talk about a film that is going to be our last feature film of 1971. Uh, Harold and Maude, directed by Hal Ashby, a beloved cult classic, kind of midnight movie fodder, and a film that, uh, for at least a very significant audience, is is one of the most important and definitive films of their life and their experience. Uh, I really enjoy this film quite a bit, and uh, we'll see where our guests are uh, at with it. But, uh, you know, this is a film that may not necessarily you know, connect with everybody. In fact, I even had one uh, comment on Facebook tonight about somebody who's looking to really get this film after maybe trying it out a couple times. Michael Muck Erdley, thank you for your kind of priming the pump a little bit as we get into our conversation, because there's a, there's a bit of controversy. There's a little bit of dissonance with this film, but it is one that uh, I know really, yeah, really presses a button for a lot of folks. And so I'm really eager to hear what our guests have to say about it. And I can say, I'm also very happy to be at this point as we are very close to the end of season three of the Criterion Reflections podcast, having covered a lot of really epic films of 1971. This seems like a pretty fitting note to wrap up this portion of it. We do have one more episode. I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. But uh, let's get into our uh, introduction of guests just to see who are the voices that will be uh, kind of accompanying me through this uh, discussion of a, a pretty remarkable film from uh, Hal Ashby. Uh, let's start with Derek Power. Derek, how's it going tonight? Uh, going pretty well. I'm I'm in a good place because it's getting autumnal. I'm autumn is my happy place. So um, yeah, yeah. I think you didn't you post like a cover uh, image on Facebook of just kind of gray clouds or something like that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Just a, a very a very nice overcast. And interestingly enough, it, it it rained about a few minutes after that happened. So it was it was a nice little moment to catch. Well, it's a nice little transitional period that we're in. Glad to hear that that's going well for you. Uh, next up, Brad McDermott. Uh, you're up there in Canada there, probably even a little bit cloudier than uh, maybe in some other parts of the country. But how's it going for you, Brad? Good, good. It is. It's cloudy. Um, we've had an, uh, a little bit of rain here and there. It's supposed to rain tomorrow. Um, so I brought my yellow umbrella with me, and I'm ready to, att <laughs> to attend this funeral. Okay. <laughs> the happiest funeral that uh, you're likely to, to sit in on for a while. Exactly. Uh, excellent. All right. And next, William Remmers. William, good to have you back. Hey, uh, things are good. I, I went on a walk today and uh, the, on the Henry Hudson River, and yeah. a train went by, and I waved at the train, and then they gave me a little toot-toot on the horn. So I was really happy that I got a train to toot-toot at me when I went by. <laughs> Yeah, that's always a good sign that somebody's paying attention and uh, kind of playing along and giving you the little little boost there. So great to have you back with us. And here's a guest that was with us once before. He's a fellow Michigander. I actually had a chance to meet him when he was up in uh, my part of the state. Mark Rep, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. Great to be here. For, we're actually taking a look at one of my top 10 all-time favorite films tonight. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that we have at least one true diehard fan. Maybe there's more than one among us. I, I, I would consider myself a fan, although it's not a film that I've seen a lot. And I, even though I saw it a long time ago, 
I've been sort of rediscovering it in preparation for this podcast. But uh, yeah, you were with us on the Sweet Sweetbacks Badass Song episode, uh, which was also part of this season, but it seems like, what, a year and a half ago or something wow. like that? It was a while back, yeah. And Brad, you were there with us I as was well. there too. <laughs> but, uh, but since maybe our, our regular listeners don't know you quite as well as uh, the folks I've already introduced, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I bought my first VCR when I, 1984 was the year. And that's where it all started for me. 1984, I got my first VCR. I think it was uh, mid-90s, got my first DVD player. And I've been a a hobbyist, a movie collector ever since. And uh, probably uh, close to 8,000 DVDs and Blu-rays in my collection at at this current point in time. And uh, I don't analyze them quite as much as your typical Criterion Reflections episode, but uh, I just... I love the different editions, uh, the extra features, and that's really why I got into DVDs in the first place was all the extra features, uh, commentaries, and so forth. Um, I love it. Cool. Well, that's a pretty impressive collection. I think, you know, I've got the whole Criterion collection, but I don't think I've got 8,000 discs. So that's a, that, that's a, that's a hefty chunk that you've accumulated. Now, do you still keep your VHSs? Have you ever like recycled all of that stuff? Or no, I never really collected VHS at all. Okay. Okay. But the DVD collection, you've just been building and building and you've never sold off chunks of it or decided to it just it keeps down. accumulating. Uh, now they're in paper <laughs> sleeves because there wasn't enough room for all the boxes. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, you're a diehard and it's great to have you back on. Um, I'm going to kind of give you a chance to expand on, on some of your introductory comments. This is a top 10 film for you. Just tell us a little bit about real quickly, what is it this uh, that this film uh, you know connects so strongly, and why would you rank it so high in the pantheon? Especially among all the you know the eight thousand titles you've collected, this is that's pretty elite company right there. Well, I can remember the first time I ever saw it, and I was in high school. Uh, the year was nineteen eighty five, and uh, it was one of those days. It was a slow day for the teachers. And um, I was told that we were going to join another classroom and our two classrooms uh, in my English class were going to get together and see a movie. And it was the favorite all-time movie of one of the two English classes, and not the one that I was in, but the other class across the hall. So um, they said that it was that teacher's all-time favorite film. And nobody knew what it was about. Nobody except that teacher knew what the film was about. And so the kids just said, hey, we get to see a movie today. So they were all happy, uh, no homework. Uh, And so we got together and all of a sudden we started watching this movie where it begins with uh, a kid about, you know, not too much different than our age. We were about 17, 18 years old and he's about 20 in the film, Mm -hmm. uh, hangs himself. And, uh, And then I started wondering, is this a comedy or what is it? What is <laughs> yeah, it? And then right. somebody said, well, it's, it's a black comedy. And at the time I didn't even know what a black comedy was. Well, fast forward to today. Um, I seek out cult films and black comedies and anything dark uh, seems to be my specialty these days. Um, horror, dark films, just anything unique and bizarre uh, seems to be the type of thing that I enjoy the most. So um I love arrow video and that sort of thing and, mm-hmm. and vinegar syndrome. So, you know, independent films, this kind of characterizes everything that I look for in a film. And it blew me away the first time I saw it and I never forgot it. And I don't think any of the kids in the classes that saw it the first time 
They may not have liked it as much as I did, but I think uh, none of them forgot about it either. That's one that stays with you. Yeah, that, that's a great intro, a great kickoff, because I think this is a film that, like you say, uh, leaves a pretty powerful impression. And some people probably even hate the film or, or, or uh, you know, dismiss it for some of the maybe the very same reasons that you love it so much. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a great way to just kind of launch into this conversation. Um, you know, Criterion uh, released this film in 2012. Um, it's spine number 608 and they call it India, an idiosyncratic American fable. And I think that's a pretty important piece of it right there that this is, this is a film that's not necessarily reality based. In fact, uh, what is the basis for this film? Maybe we'll get into that as we kind of get a little bit deeper into the analysis of it all. But I think also the fact that you saw it in that context, uh, kind of a surprise, you know, blind plunge in, and letting letting the shock value of those opening scenes fully register that's that's pretty cool uh, let's just go back through the the, the list here and, and just kind of get some of your initial impressions Derek uh, what's your relationship with Harold and Maud uh, when did you first see it and what kind of impression did it make on you um, well for I've, I've known about it through reputation for a long time as being like a, a favorite of certain film directors and so forth and I've I, I first saw it when I first bought it on, on blue and it did, it wasn't when it first came out. It was like a couple, it was like a couple of years or so after it went out and I liked it. It was one of those titles that I think I could have watched more regularly, but I, I, I didn't, it's, but it's not because I didn't like it or anything. It's just that I think I've seen, I, I think I've seen the films that have, that have, that have been influenced by it and especially Wes Anderson. Like it, it was, it was very clear to me, like several shots, like, okay, <laughs> this is, this is like one of um, Anderson's mu- Wes's muses, if you like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's, maybe it's because of that. I don't watch it on the regular, but having said that it is, it is quite enjoyable. Um, you know, I, I, I like it for similar reasons to what Mark had said, you know, it's, it's very, idiosyncratic it's very unusual it's uh it's it's kind of offbeat um i found it you know and actually watching it again for preparing for this conversation i found myself laughing at various points uh especially at the <laughs> a lot of a lot of the darker stuff and, and it's just because i i'm i'm also a fan of more dark humor and mm-hmm. this is full of it and such so um, sure is all right brad give us a little bit of your kind of encounter background with with Harold and Maude? Um, so this movie is actually uh, one of the reasons why I, I, I really wanted to be part of this cast is uh, this movie is actually my partner Fred's one of his like all-time favorite films mm-hmm. um, and I, I hadn't seen this film actually until last weekend um, Great. to watch it to get ready for the for this cast um, I I knew Hal Ashby. The only the only Hal Ashby film I had seen was Being There, and um, I saw that about two years ago, and it really just blew me away. I thought it was absolutely brilliant, um, and and after that, I sort of grabbed uh, that Criterion, and I I picked up just the Harold and Maude. I picked up um, 
the last detail indicator indicators release of that just sort of blind buying some Hal Ashby titles. Um, but I hadn't gotten around to seeing Harold and Maude yet. And so um, when, you know, when he sent out the email for all, all of us that this was coming up soon, I was like, well, there's as good a time as ever. So uh, yeah, last weekend we popped it in and I loved it. Absolutely. Fantastic. It was nice to have a good, fresh impression there. So I look forward to hearing more of your thoughts on that and maybe even a little bit about, about Fred's uh, fandom and all. So uh, let's go over to William. William, what's your uh, uh, relationship with this film? This is a movie that came up a lot when I was in high school with uh, the cool kids that I knew. A lot of the kids that were in the literary magazine with me uh, were like were in art clubs and generally a year or two older. And they always talked about this this movie. At the time, you know, it would probably have been um, that DVD cover, I think you can see it, kind of uh, mm-hmm. just the two of them in that horrible, faded, the kind of too zoomed in image. And uh, I uh, I didn't see it like Derek until um, the blue came out. I must have gotten it within uh, pretty soon after the release because I it had been hyped so much. And similar to everyone else, I knew about its reputation in uh, filmmakers circles in the interim. But to me, it was, it was always a movie I knew was a lot of people's favorite movie, whether they're filmmakers or or just fans or people I knew. And when I saw it the first time, my reaction uh, was so strongly positive towards any scene or any sequence involving Harold and his mother that (laughs) I, I, I felt very underwhelmed by the Harold and Maude component. And mm-hmm. I, I'd always wished that the film was just about Harold and his mom. Maybe, be, and I think that I think okay. that I, I might, I might be able to follow up on that topic of that. It's very hard to imagine what it would have been like if I had seen this a when I was eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and not I would have seen it at about twenty four or twenty five. Which again, that was still like I had still developed a lot past a Harold age at that point. And also, if I had seen it when it came out or I had been one of the people to discover it and find it and embrace it. It, it had come with so much baggage that I couldn't see Maude as being anything other than a manic pixie dream girl who lives and dies to fulfill Harold's existence and happiness. Mm-hmm. And besides that, I think I was just sort of irritated by um, some things that I thought were a little cloying in, in Ruth Gordon's characterization moments I thought could have been dialed down or, um, or could have just been lighter in tone. Uh, things that are dropped in, like the uh, the tattoo that I I still feel is a bit uh, troubling, to just kind of drop that in <laughs> as if it's set yeah. dressing. But mm-hmm. anytime it cuts to Harold and his mom, or even their periphery, I'm in love with it. And I rewatched it uh, in anticipation of the podcast for the first time, then in a number of years, hoping I would feel totally different, and I felt even more the same. Mm-hmm. And I don't, mm-hmm. the thing is, it's the thing about this movie is I will never say I dislike it. I like the movie Harold and Maude, but I don't find myself as in love with it as probably, probably, I probably like it the least out of anybody in the room. And it's not, I would never be willing to die on the hill of trying to say it's not good or bring it down a level. I'm so glad it exists because clearly it changed the way people make movies. Mm-hmm. And it has had so many positive effects on everybody's lives that, and also the negative reviews I read um, are all nonsense to me. Negative reviews about it being too dark or the humor being too unpleasant or the love story being between people of two disparate ages. Like I, none of that is my issue. 
right. They, my issues t- tend to just sort of just be in um, functions of, of the characters. And I appreciate the surreality of the film so much. Um, and maybe, yeah, maybe to one, maybe the montages and the, the Cat Stevens music doesn't fill me with, I think, the whimsy and the joy that sometimes I think the film wants me to feel and the a feeling of, of limitlessness and of growth. Um, the more I see, the more I feel maybe uh, pessimistic. So I, I, <laughs> okay. I, 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 I'm, okay. I'm hoping everybody might, uh, over the course of this conversation, get me to see some things about maybe the Harold and Maude side of the film that will break me out of maybe some of the trappings that I've encountered because of the way that, say, that character's archetype has been used since, more so than beforehand. Because you could say that uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girls have been around since Screwballs and long before. But um, just the, the without Harold and Maude, we don't have Garden State. And for that, I apologize for Harold and Maude. <laughs> should, should definitely... Um, pay some pay some dues but Hal Ashby seems like a cool guy and um I regret oh, yeah. the only film of his I've seen but I mean anybody that's that's smoking pot all day is good in my book so <laughs> I I'm excited to talk about it because I do think that I enjoy watching the experience of watching it um but I I'm just not on board with I think what for most people is the draw of the film all right well this these are great takes and I do appreciate having a little you know more of a critical eye here uh i'm i may join you in some aspects there but i i really i love this film and and i'm pretty enthusiastic about uh what what it's saying here uh while i fully recognize some of the reasons people might not get on board with it so let me tell you a little bit about my story with harold mod uh, i first saw it probably back in Oh, 1980, 81 or so. This was in my kind of punk rock years when I was kind of, you know, forming a band playing in the San Francisco Bay Area. And in the meantime, just kind of, you know, making the scene, going to midnight movies and, you know, the repertory uh, houses in Berkeley and and the East Bay and the San Francisco area. And this is just one of the films that I saw. And, uh, you know, was with was a pretty enthusiastic audience and people who really dug it. And honestly, I mean, even though I saw it and and was all right, I, it didn't connect with me maybe in the way that it does now, looking back on it, almost with a little bit of nostalgia or just a little bit of, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe just kind of a more mature clarity. I think at the time I, I got what the film was trying to say. But, you know, again, I was in sort of my angry, young, punk rock rebel phase, and and I considered this film to be a little bit, well, I, I didn't even know the word back then, but I would call it twee now, you know, uh, as this kind of a little little bit precious when I was definitely more full of anger and wanting to, you know, overthrow the system and, and tear things up, and here's this little spoiled rich kid who, you know, he's a little bit of, you know, kind of a living in this little privileged bubble there and he meets this kind of wacky you know crazy old lady and she kind of opens him up and and uh, you know so so I, I understood what it was coming from but i think at the time i didn't almost really want to identify as much with harold as i probably do now looking back uh i i recognize a lot of aspects of, of his experience and personality that probably does describe me or, or fit me in some ways, even though I didn't have nearly the kind of privileged upbringing that, that, you know, this, this young kid did, 
but the fact that it, you know there's no father in the home uh, that his mother is very you know kind of cloying and and a little bit overbearing uh again i don't want to say negative things about my mom but i certainly understood a little bit more about having all of those expectations placed upon you as a as a young man coming of age and not feeling like you're able to live up to them and that was certainly an issue with with my own you know upbringing and and coming into adulthood so without getting too autobiographical i think it was like in some ways the movie hit a little close to home and because i didn't really want to identify with the kind of the art crowd that that really dug this film uh for similar reasons i i wasn't you know really like another rocky horror thing uh because again you know i i didn't want to get into this what i considered kind of cutesy side of of kind of the alternative subculture of the time i wanted to be more like angry and rebellious and and kind of almost more like destructive and chaotic and and so that's you know kind of a micro scene thing where i just kind of diverged from that but at the same time this movie kind of made quite an impression on me and i've thought about it over the years and then like i say i've had the disc for a while but hadn't really rewatched it up until more recently and it just brought back a flood of memories and impressions and uh even helped me put some of my own uh kind of youthful experiences around the time when i first saw this uh film and the things that were happening in my life at that time into some context so yeah, it's been kind of a, a long and, and checkered history uh, that I've had, even though there's not been tons of time spent viewing it. But over this past uh, couple of weeks now, after uh, we kind of moved on from Macbeth, I kind of got over into this world and uh, have really been enjoying the experience of, of rewatching the film, thinking about it. I've read a fair number of articles. Uh, there's a pretty good making of book that I actually purchased full of anecdotes and uh, just really got into the lore of, of this uh, pretty singular a little little piece of work here. So let's um, let's kind of go ahead and get into Hal Ashby. Anybody want to kind of give me a, a take? Uh, maybe some of you I, I don't think have, have gotten tons of experience with Hal Ashby, but uh, uh, who, who wants to kind of give a shout out to uh, you know to his work as a director, his influence? Uh, I'll, I'll open the floor to whoever wants to jump in on that. Um, I mean, as I understand uh, from from the interview that's on this disc, um, yeah, Hal the Ashby, audio bits there. Yeah, the Hal Ashby uh, came from the world of editing. Uh, that yeah. was his sort of access into uh, filmmaking. He, I think, he always wanted to be a director, and he was. Um, he had just assumed that you become a director by becoming an assistant director. And that's not really the way it works. I don't think <laughs> then, and, I'm, and I right. know for certain, not now, um, in maybe in the, in, in like the Japanese system. I mean, I think Akira Kurosawa was an assistant director and then went up the ranks, but I know in America that that's not how it goes. Um, the best way to be a director is either through cinematography, sometimes writing, but especially editing. That's where you really, editing is where you really get the tools to know, um, you know, what cuts together, what makes a scene and what gets tossed in the editing room floor. Um, so that really helps prepare someone uh, when they decide to become a director. Yeah, well, yeah. And Ashby really was kind of an interesting character. He, he, he had sort of a presumption about him. I mean, I think he first got into the film business by going to like the California 
unemployment office or something like that. It's some kind of a, a job search. And he says, well, I want to be a director. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, a woman that he was working with got him some kind of a super entry level job, but it was really just, you know, almost like sorting mail or something like that. But uh, he, he managed to, to work his way up. And I believe that one of the keys for him was a friendship that he established with Norman Jewison, who we talked about this in this season when we covered his film Fiddler on the Roof. And of course, Jewison was a pretty big player in in the directing circles and so he had actually set up ashby to direct a film called the landlord which i was gonna try to dig up and see if i could fit it in before i got to tonight but it just didn't work out um and that was hal ashby's directorial debut and i think it was a it was a about a a guy who owns buildings uh, rents to black tenants and kind of I think there's some comedic elements to it, but it's just kind of a little bit of a a story about race relations and kind of a um, you know a social commentary on on some of the issues that were prevalent at the time. But Ashby really kind of came into this um, optimal period for somebody like him. This was, of course, the new Hollywood, and the studios were really on their heels, kind of trying to figure out how are we going to survive. Uh, business was was kind of at an all-time low at this point, and so films like Easy Rider and, and kind of youth-oriented uh, pictures were, were seen as sort of a way forward. And, and as William kind of alluded to, Hal Ashby was very much a product of the counterculture. There's a very brief cameo shot of him in a kind of an amusement park scene that was filmed down in Santa Cruz, where he is standing right between Harold and Maude as they're playing with some model trains there's like a train set that you could apparently prop a quarter in the machine and and play with the trains and there he is with long stringy hair a really pretty well-developed beard it's probably a good five six inches long uh kind of those john lennon granny glasses and he's yeah definitely looks all the bit about a kind of a zonked out stoner um of of the time but he was a visionary director who basically had, I think, one of the best 10-year runs uh, of, uh, you know, the, the latter half of the 20th century as far as making very uh, idiosyncratic, uh, there's that word again, uh, but very, yeah, very um, heartfelt films um, that really cover a variety of, you know, situations and times. He also directed Shampoo. That's kind of, I think, this Harold and Maude shampoo and being there are kind of his three criterion releases. The last detail uh, was also mentioned and then coming home, uh, an Academy award winning film starring Jane Fonda and John Voight that dealt with, uh, you know, kind of a returning uh, soldier from Vietnam who suffered serious injuries. And that was Ashby's pretty strong anti-war statement. So he made films that had a conscious uh, social message, uh, idealistic kind of um, naive figures who kind of, you know, come into the roughness of the world, uh, sort of sensitive and unsullied that they learn a lesson along the way and emerge at the end a little bit wiser and stronger and, and hopefully ready to go out there and thrive and cope in, uh, in their own style, you know, as they, um, as they maybe picked up a few things about how this world operates and uh, are better off for it. And I think those are the characters that audiences identify with. And this one here, I think, is is really kind of, that that's the make or break point. Do you identify either with Harold or with Maude? You know, I think, I think those two characters are the magnets that pull people in. 
And so let's get a little bit into that. But first of all, does anybody else have any, you know, thoughts, uh, feedback on Hal Ashby, uh, or, or maybe even questions? Maybe I can tell you a little bit more about him if, if you're, if you're curious. Uh, I would like to say one thing that, that I learned and didn't realize was, you know, Harold and Maude was his second film. And by the mm-hmm. time he had made Harold and Maude, he had already won an Academy Award. Uh, he, he won uh, the Academy Award for Best Editing for In the Heat mm-hmm. of the Night, yep. Uh, yep. which, of course, was a Norman Jewison film. Mm-hmm. And that was really a, a pretty great, you know, foot in the door uh, as he established not only did he have those technical skills, but he, he had the ambition to, to you know, be a, a full-time director. And, uh, you know, he used those connections and those opportunities to kind of do his own thing. And, you know, one of the, one of the sort of backstories of this film was that it was very, you know, hotly anticipated. The studio really felt like they had a big hit on their hands. Um, he, he had, he had the opportunity to really do it his way. I mean, there, there were some things that he had to work around and there's, there's, there's some making of stuff that I can get into, but he, he really did have a pretty free hand in, in making the film that he wanted to make. Um, and, you know, the opportunity was there because the studios were cutting young directors, these young, you know, hot shots, a lot of slack, uh, as long as they could return the goods. And they really felt like this was going to be a, a smash hit. And it, it just was not at least on first release. And there's probably some pretty good reasons that could explain that as to why it just didn't connect with, with uh, mainstream audiences at the time. Uh, box office and critical failure as well. Oh yeah, exactly. The critics were just not really into this at all. I don't know. There may have been a few reviews out there that were supportive, but I think for the most part, um, people were kind of turned off by the by the premise and didn't find it really all that funny. Um, they, you know, some of the some of the whimsy they felt was cloying. And I think, you know, some of those critical takes that, that William and, and maybe some of the other of us might have when you get into the technical details um, really did kind of cloud the judgment. I think there's also the idea that this film was released like December 20th, 1971. Uh, an interesting aspect is that The Godfather uh, was a Paramount film that was supposed to be released at that time. They were wanting to make this the big Christmas blockbuster, but... Coppola's uh, shooting and and post-production ran over schedule. And so Paramount had a lot of theaters booked and reserved for the Godfather premiere. Uh, It wasn't ready. So Harold and Maude went in (laughs) and uh, I just, I think maybe it was, it was overexposed or it just opened in too many theaters. Uh, I don't know if anybody else caught this anecdote. It, it did very well in Baltimore. And yes, I, 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 I saw think that about one. the John Waters. <laughs> yeah. But Hal Ashby asked you asked the the how that was, and yeah. uh, apparently, um, whoever owned the theater in Baltimore uh, really did, didn't like the the uh, advertising that mm-hmm. the studio was sort of promoting it as and so they he he or she i I assume it's a he uh threw it out and um just uh went like advertise it straight as it is this is a movie about a you know young 20 something kid and a 70 year old 
woman falling in love. And, and whereas I think Paramount was trying to like skirt that aspect of it, that maybe it was just sort of like a fun buddy kind of, you know, quirky kind of thing. But by, by attacking it directly, I, he found that people were super interested when it was advertised that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you guys think this film should have been marketed? I mean, this is, you know, the, the story is that it, it found its audience kind of by word of mouth and probably connected with a very small subculture of people who just wanted to see it, you know, several times, if not dozens or even hundreds of times. I mean, some people really took this film to heart, but boy, if you're a studio exec, how do you market this to become a, a popular mainstream hit? Is it even possible? I don't think so. Um, I think part of uh, Harold and Maude is that it is a film of its time. And I think uh, that because it was so strange when it first came out, it was, it's only from a generation maybe afterwards that is looking to find uh, characters that sort of reflect their own um their own feelings of, you know, not aligning themselves with society. And usually, you know, quirky films that we have that come out now always sort of attach themselves to some sort of nostalgic idea of the past. And we can say, oh, yeah, you know, I like old quirky music, too. And I didn't think anybody else liked it. So I'm going to really like this movie where this movie is full of that but it's out of its own time period so it maybe needed a generation afterwards that was kind of lost and looking looking in film for something that reflected how they felt in order to to uh for it to to find its following hmm. yeah there's even a scene where there's a 1971 calendar right there on the wall i think it's in uh in mods uh kind of train car apartment there and so yeah this was very much a contemporary film that was telling a story of its own time um let's maybe go back to the beginning of the film and well i'm going to give you a chance to kind of start dissecting the uh harold and and mrs uh chasen uh harold and mom Harold and mom. Sure. We'll, we'll yeah. call it that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because that is how it starts. You know, Derek's already described the, uh, the opening uh, suicidal act there, a very solemn march. And it's quite an epic shot. If you really go back and rewatch it, that's a pretty, uh, you know, uh, monumental opening to, to the film, just the pacing, the music, uh, the solemnity of it all. And then the, the payoff when, uh, when we see, you know, Harold dangling in midair in the, from the ceiling of this very sumptuous, very ornate mansion, his mother comes walking in and it's not the reaction you would normally expect. <laughs> but right. uh, tell us a little bit about that relationship and, and what it is that fascinates you about them. Vivian Pickles. That's yes. it. This film, I think, lives on the back of Vivian Pickles' performance as Harold's mom because of how completely fully realized it is i really enjoy in the booklet um an interview the two the, the contemporaneous interview with ruth gordon and then the one of the retrospective interviews including with bud court i think were the two best parts of the booklet and in the bud court moment he's talking a little bit about how he was going out of his way to kind of annoy her so that way the relationship could could sort of work in that she ignores everything he does and um spend so much time so wrapped up in herself and her own 
social sphere that she's just frustrated by, you know, the mess. The fact that I think that it's almost out of character how upset she gets when he cuts his wrists in the bathtub. But it's almost more just the inconvenience and frustration of having to deal with it every day. But this is this is a relationship where his mother, uh, the bait and switch at the beginning is you think the mother will think it's a suicide. And of course, it's just another one of Harold's dumb pranks. There's never once that she is upset because she thinks her son is dead. Um, I guess that's telling you that this has been going on for years. And I think that's made clear in Harold's backstory revealed later mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. that he just has this particular habit that he cannot um, push aside. And it, I guess it, it reaches its peak at the beginning, which is why he ends up uh, seeing his uncle and seeing the psychiatrist and his mother pushes him into other uh, realms. That part of the relationship is really fascinating to me because um, Harold seems to have quite a large amount of autonomy and personal income in that he's not relying upon his mother to make purchases of a hearse, for example. But if his mom says, you have to go to the psychiatrist, you have to see your uncle, he'll still do it. And I wonder, like, the, I think that part of the journey for him is, is sort of left a little, a little vague of exactly why he does the things his mother says. He even says later that he has a, like a date, he has somewhere to go to. Maude says the dentist. And he's like, sort of. And it's the psychiatrist. He has his, his obligations to his mom or whatever errands that he has to accomplish. And he still does them dutifully. Um, so it doesn't strike me that these suicides are, are anything other than the way they feel. They're an expression that he wants to give. But um, he also looks at us uh, in, into the camera later on, which I think is probably my favorite moment of the whole movie, um, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people have used that image of him looking into the camera, but it's even made better because his mom catches him doing it. And then he kind of brings it back which you never see that second half of the shot uh, when people show, show it. So he's, he's got... Right, and this was an improvised moment. This was not something that was scripted. Right. He just sort of went with it and felt it, and Hal Ashby brilliantly kept it. Yeah. Right, and so the relationship develops over a number of vignettes. It, it really does feel to me like there are, there are two separate films happening, at least structurally, where you, you cut back and forth between segments of him on his own and meeting Maude and their relationship and his home life. And those two don't really interact. The mod does interact with his uncle, which is fun. Uh, but the suicide attempts, which are increasingly outrageous and funny and bizarre and serve to not only frustrate his mother, but stave off interest from his potential computer dates, uh, which is... I, 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 that part of the movie is so funny that I, I would have liked a 90-minute movie of just like him bothering dates. Like I think that... the pursuing that route is so much more interesting to me. Like I could see him grow on his own that way and find, I mean, I think the most interesting date is the third one where somebody actually um, also is an actor, so to speak. Right. Yeah. She anyway, kind of gets on his um, wavelength and is ready to, you know, yeah. follow along. Right. Well, she, she sees immediately that it's fake. Whereas the first two mm -hmm. girls don't, they believe right. that he actually killed himself. And, um, it's in a way he needs someone more like his mother that's going to not believe him. But mm -hmm. um, those 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 situations are are so wonderful, and I think the relationship is most perfectly demonstrated in the sequence where um, she's filling out the computer date form and then slowly, gently switches into answering for herself. Yes, oh, yeah. just giving I her that too. just giving her own answers, just saying, "Well, I, of course, of course, I, these sorts of things," and 
Um, hearing her, her political views are pretty much laid out in that scene. And they're all in accordance with the way we've, we've demonstrated her so far. And I think they have such a fun chemistry because there's, there is an odd chemistry there that you have to have with these two actors in order for those scenes to work where she doesn't look him in the eye, but she can still have these full conversations, which are basically with herself. Uh, people remark about how little Harold speaks at the beginning. It takes quite a long while for him to even say anything. And then even then it's gradually an increase of actual verbal participation from Harold, the character. So, um, I guess it is like the mod side that we then see those growths reflected in the other half of the story. Uh, but I, I'm so in love with all the sequences at his home, which is just so horrible. And like just the thought of having to live, you, I very rarely feel bad for rich people, but I feel bad for Harold. And uh, I want him to escape from having to eat dinner with these crusty old people and be forced to eat his beets. Eat his and- beets. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean- right. I think there's sort of a, a piece of this puzzle um, that's kind of missing. Like a key aspect of this for me, of Harold for me, is the monologue that he gives about the um, accident that happened in the in the science lab of his school, and where everyone presumes that he's dead from this from this explosion that happened, but he he survived. And he oversees his mom being told by the police that he is dead. And mom uh, feigns a fainting spell. And I, I think that like that is the key, uh, at least for, it was for me, that Harold is realizing that his mom doesn't love him at all. And... Um, so like that, that like at the beginning, you're led to think that these uh, suicide attempts are just um, like a teenage rebellion. Like you can understand, right? He, he comes from a rich family. He's really bored and he, you know, all mom's uncool, uncle's un- uncool, all the, the therapists are uncool. All these things are uncool. My way of rebelling is, is to fake my own death and hopefully that it horrifies them enough. But after that speech, it comes. It's a. It's a. It's viewed through a completely different lens, where he is doing these things because he realizes his mom doesn't care if he lived or died, and that sheds an entire new light for me on on their relationship and and why he gravitates to someone like Maud. I want to hear some other thoughts on this, but I, I think, yeah, you're, you're really putting your finger on something there that obviously there's a fracture, there's a, an alienation that he's experiencing with his mother, but in some ways, Harold isn't really your typical rebellious or unloved teenager. I mean, he's not, you know, striking out on his motorcycle like an easy rider. He's not in your face. I mean, yeah, obviously the, these suicide attempts are, are pretty theatrical stunts, but he, he's not overtly angry. He's not running away. He's not getting loud and boisterous. There's something very repressed about him. And, you know, there's also kind of this this quiet despair. You know, he says at a certain point, I've never really lived. He's throttling himself. He, you know, he's not acting out in a rebellious way that's kind of giving him some kind of satisfaction. Uh, he's, he's a smart, creative brilliant in his own way. I mean, that these little stunts that he is able to manufacture 
they have a certain magic about them. I mean, the scene where he sets himself on fire, like there's no physical way that he could have done that. And then he pops up off camera, you know, coming in or, or even the scene where he, you know, he chops off his arm. I mean, he's using that same hand to reach into his, into his jacket to get his little breath spray out. And the next thing you know, that hand is now, you know, obviously it's, it's a prosthetic and somehow he's, supposed to have done this little uh, maneuver so that he can chop it off without actually mutilating his own body. Well, so there there is this kind of fable-like magical realism or whatever you want to call it. But I, I'm kind of curious, what is it that, that draws audiences to, to the character of Harold? What do they identify with him? Mark, I'm going to give you a chance to, to kind of jump on that one. What, what do you find appealing or what is it that gravitates you to this slightly deranged suicidal young man well uh i really enjoyed uh brad's take on that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. i had never really thought about it that way and i've seen this film countless times but uh it's interesting um is he doing it for his own amusement uh just to see how uh, you know just to see how clever he can be and to see what his mother's reaction is or does he truly believe that she doesn't care and, and he wants to find out uh, whether she would cry or whether she would uh, mourn his death. Um, and I never thought about it that way, that maybe that's why he's doing it, uh, just to see if his mother uh, really would miss him if he was gone. Um, yeah. you know, but then, of course, the, it goes on from there, and then you get to see the reactions of his potential dates and uh, <laughs> how his mother is trying to fix him up with these d- various women and and taking you know the time to answer the questionnaire exactly how she would answer it, uh, giving her own answers in, in place of what uh, Harold would put. But um, you know then he continued. It, the, the film is funny in that dark comic way. But mm-hmm. then you start thinking that there is some seriousness here, and and Ashby, who did not write the, the uh, script, but is definitely showing a lot of his own characteristics. Uh, in the story itself, uh, you know, he was, of course, counterculture. He was anti-establishment. He was, uh, he had trouble with any authority figure at all. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I kind of looked at it as his story as well, uh, sort of telling his own story, but uh, through the form of this quirky young man. But yeah, I mean, there's so many things that you see. Uh, as many times as I've seen it, uh, the way that Brad was describing um, the mother relationship the relationship he had with his mother uh and the fact that he does get uh, uh, very melancholy later in the film and and tells how uh he hasn't lived but he's died a few times and and then goes into the reaction that his mother had uh it's very interesting and and it's a very emotional reaction i mean he's sobbing he's really letting it out maybe he's never he certainly never shared that with the the psychiatrist <laughs> and he probably didn't have anything to say to his his uncle you know the military uh commander there so this is this is finally a person he can sort of say here's this vulnerable thing that i've been holding on to here's this hurt that i've never dared to disclose to anybody else um i also think about some of those reactions you see while he's hanging there after his mother kind of walks away he has this little grin on his face and he does the same kind of thing uh in, when he's all bloodied up in in the bathtub there you know he has this little smirk that is like yeah that was a pretty good one there so he's he's kind of taking a little bit of satisfaction from this 
but it's it's kind of a dead end i mean it's it's you know he he feels his own cleverness but he's not really accomplishing anything out of it. He, he's 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 acting out but but not really getting a reaction other than his own satisfaction at you know well i showed her but did he really before we move on to other topics derek you want to say anything more about that whole you know the the, the suicide sequences and, and that just had whole theme coming through the film I, I think it's i think it's all of those things and certainly more it um i kind of take yeah it's 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 all a reaction to um the, the kind of life that his mother is is sort of putting on him and and yeah i did notice how she was filling out the questionnaire more for herself than for him and um, how he and using it in front of his computer days was like a, a, a convenient way of kind of <laughs> shoving them off a bit. Um, well, yeah, she's got to hook him. I mean, it, it's getting to the age where he needs to sort of be out of my life. I mean, he's only making my social affairs all the more awkward. I have to explain and apologize for him and. I'm tired of, you know, him pulling stunts in front of all my company. So we've got to figure out a solution to the Harold problem. And actually, actually that's kind of what I sort of like about Harold is, is I kind of get the sense that he is, he's aware of the game and he doesn't particularly like it. And he's finding every which way to say that this, this absolutely sucks, (laughs) whether it's, Mm Doing the whether it's doing the fake suicide with his mother or the way he talks to his psychiatrist or um, the the kind of indifference he shows like when he's when he's with his uncle and and with everybody it seems like everybody's trying to tell him how to play the game and he's figured out that this is a game not worth playing and certainly this comes into light when he does have that big uh, emotional reveal which I think is really quite touching you know in a way mm-hmm. and and actually what's interesting maybe this is jumping a little ahead is 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 the fact that he just that he did just say this that he was able to say this to Maud, which which tells me that he has a couple of things like one he has a certain trust in her to be in order to be that vulnerable and also this was not prompted by her you know she didn't she didn't ask him to do but he just he just revealed this voluntarily but then it also hit on something that was, I think was really on his mind. And I think, I think that's really, really genuine and uh, very understandable, very, you know, very relatable and allows for some empathy for sure. Uh, So yes, I think it's, I think it's all this thing. Yeah. Just that kind of melancholy and, and that sort of, uh, yeah. Melancholic rebellion, I guess is a, is a good way of describing his uh, kind of his actions to, the whole world which is i think very understandable if you if you know that this is how the game is played and you just don't want to have any kind of part of it yeah yeah he's very socially isolated i mean he tells the psychiatrist he has no friends and i think that seems pretty believable you know whether it's because of this privileged bubble maybe because you know mama's tied the apron strings kind of tight and hasn't really given him the opportunity to go out and meet with people maybe he's just that type of temperament that doesn't mix and mingle as freely for any number of reasons and i and i i kind of wonder you know how much does this sort of archetype appeal to those folks uh which i'll even consider myself sometimes feel a little bit you know like a social misfit 
I don't really fit with this group or that group. I'm not one of the populars. I'm not part of the, the broad mainstream. I've just got this strange outlook on life that puts me at a little bit of distance. Even if you're just feeling it yourself, maybe you still socialize a little bit more than Harold does. But I think that to me seems to be a big part of the appeal is like people who, who see themselves as just a little bit marching to their own beat, yeah. um, identify with this guy who doesn't really know where he fits in. You can say certainly that life has handed him a lot of freedom and opportunity. He's not really being pressed to even go to college or, or, or work or any of that, but there's something that just doesn't sit quite right with him. And I think that's, that's one of those magnetic draws that, you know, cause a lot of people to identify very positively with this film. They, they see something of their own experience, even though that's a little bit, you know, hyper stylized and, and not necessarily reality based. There's an emotional component here that, that hooks them in. Actually, uh, going back to an earlier question, like how would you market this film? One of the one yeah. of the thoughts that came to me when rewatching it today was, this is kind of like The Graduate, except for social misfits and yeah. outsiders. Mm-hmm. So instead of being like Benjamin Braddock, who's supposed to be you know the the typical American young young man who's about to start his life. This is kind of like for everybody and move else. into the corporate world and all of that. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's on the upward trajectory of, you know, upper middle-class prosperity and, and all of that. But he's, he also sort of senses that displacement, like, is this really what it's all about? Uh, and that disillusionment with the adult world that you've been taught to look up to all of your life. And then you get to be an adult yourself and say, Oh, this is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> you know, I don't really right. don't really want to get into this game. Is there any other alternatives out there? I mean, that kind of um, disillusionment. So I mentioned that my, my partner, Fred, this was uh, one of his favorite films. Um, and he had watched this movie. I'm not, I'm not going to go too, too uh, yeah. deep into, but, yeah. but um, obviously he's my partner, so he is mm-hmm. gay. And this movie was a, you know, uh, at, uh, when he watched this movie, it was during, you know, the time when he was when he was going through the coming out process. So um, it's very natural, uh, I think, uh, very natural for uh, people, uh, as we you know, especially he watched this in the 80s, um, yep. to see a character, even though, you know, Harold is not LGBT, um, you know, there weren't a lot of LGBT characters in the 80s right. uh, and on any screen. Um, just to, to identify with someone who, like you said, you know, walks different, feels different, feels like it doesn't fit in with, with, uh, everyone else. Um, and, and it's really easy. I really think that, that people would gravitate for Harold it, like my partner did, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's yeah, a big yeah. piece of it. I think I think the crowd that yeah I saw the film was 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 you know a bunch of punk new wave artsy types and a lot of young people as well as some older folks too. I mean, older like in their you know, late twenties, early thirties. You know, I was like what twenty twenty one years old or not even twenty one. I think I was nineteen or twenty when I saw it. So you know that was definitely kind of we were sort of that alternative crowd of all different sorts. And I I think that you've put your finger on something right there too, Brad. That you know, if, if you felt like, and, and even the inability to, to, to share exactly what you were thinking or feeling, uh, because there's a, a high risk to doing that. Certainly I can say, you know, coming out as a gay person in that time, even though that wasn't an unknown thing in my community, there was still, you, you had to be very careful of who you revealed that to. Oh, exactly. 
exactly and and i also think the uh, the idea of an unconventional romance mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. it, uh, really gravitates towards that as well yeah yeah and i think even just the you know the the uh the flirtation with morbidity. I mean, beyond the suicide attempts, you know, one of Harold's big hobbies is going to the funerals of strangers. And of course he buys a car. It's a hearse. He gets a cool little Jag. He converts it into a hearse. And so, yeah, there is this preoccupation with, with death and darkness, things that are typically not even discussed in polite society. There's something little unusual that he's surrounding himself with people who are grieving and and again it's it's all sort of woven into that backstory that he kind of preferred being dead because maybe now they'll miss me now they'll recognize you know maybe how special i was or or i won't be taken for granted they'll think of me with some wisp of sadness and regret that maybe we didn't do the things that we should have done whatever the case may be but yeah he's he's a he's a young man with very unusual tastes and hobbies and pastimes but it's this it's this uh uncanny woman that he encounters who opens him up and perhaps restores him to the the potential of a more fulfilling life so let's get into the the mod character uh who would like to kind of give their impressions of of ruth gordon i'll, I'll open that up again to anybody who wants to just jump into that side of the story well, the uh, the role was originally going to go to Dame Edith Evans, yeah, um, yeah. Robert Evans, uh, who was uh, head honcho at the studio back at that time, um, really wanted Edith Evans, and uh, and eventually uh, it went to Ruth Gordon, who had already won an Academy Award for uh, Rosemary's Baby as mm -hmm. supporting actress, uh, and uh, she, you know, it was about seventy five, I think, about the time yeah, that this was made. And, uh, you know, obviously I, you know, looking at it now, I, I can't imagine anyone else playing this role. Uh, it was made for her and she had the energy and, and she had the personality, uh, just, uh, perfect. And of course that character I think was later, uh, brought back to life, um, in some ways, uh, in every which way, but loose in any which way you can, uh, in a way. Um, and this kind of started that, uh, that characterization of her as being uh, kind of the the funny lady who, <laughs> who, who makes you laugh, but, but uh, she was perfect for Harold in this film. And, and she was the, the perfect, um, the opposite of him. She was a total opposite uh, and brought him to life. And what mm -hmm. I, one thing I wanted to mention too, I thought this was interesting as I was listening to the commentary. I don't know if anyone has listened to the commentary uh, mm -hmm. on the criterion disc, but Nick Dawson is the all the author of uh Hal Ashby's biography, uh, and he mentioned that um, in the commentary that, and I thought this was interesting, that Harold starts out as white as a sheet in the early part of yeah. the film, uh -huh. yeah. and as the film goes on, he slowly starts getting more and more color into his face, as, and as he meets, uh, as he meets Maud, uh, he starts becoming more more living. He starts living more. He starts coming to life. And as he comes more and more to life, uh, as the film progresses, he gets more and more color and starts mm -hmm. uh, looking more and more like a living person. <laughs> and he and he does live more. And she brings life to him. Yeah. 
Yeah, even even his hairstyle sort of seems to be a little less like at the if, at very beginning. I mean, the way his hair is combed, his his skin has this white porcelain. He looks like a doll. He looks like sort of a a, a toy or a mannequin of some sort. And uh, you know, or a corpse exactly. So, well, somebody who's really withdrawn, somebody yeah. who's you know a creature of the night or lurks in the shadows or never gets out of doors you could also say very self-absorbed and now all of a sudden he's well not all of a sudden but he's gone through this process where he recognizes that connecting with at least one other person uh, brings a new dimension to his life and gets him out of his own little shell a little bit so William you know, I know you, you had some things about Ruth Gordon's performance that you, you didn't care for um uh, you can go negative if you want. <laughs> go ahead and and maybe give us a little bit of, more of your of your take on on her role. Uh, I definitely recognize that that persona has been imitated. I don't think it was necessarily invented for this film, but she she kind of expressed it in a pretty particular way that I think sort of established a template that others have have uh, exploited and followed. But you want to say a little bit more about uh, about Maud's character and and how Ruth inhabited it. Yeah, I, I, there's something about, you know, kooky characters, characters that are unlike real people that we have to first accept, as we've already done, that this film is stylized to a point of fantasy in a lot of aspects. We've broken the fourth wall with Harold. We've had demonstrations of magic tricks. It, um, it shouldn't be seen to be. It, a criticism should never be that that wouldn't happen in real life. A film can set up rules and then even break its own rules, and I don't think that is ever a bad thing. I think trying to get away from that kind of thinking is, is very important to be accepting of, of films more often than not. But one thing about this film is, is a lot of the um, the sort of wild things Maud might do, for example, evading uh, the police and what, ostensibly getting herself deeper and deeper and deeper into a series of criminal charges for the sake of what? Like, I don't know exactly. I mean, it's it's the, the best line she has in that sequence is um, she complains that he's being officious um, by detailing the crimes and saying that, you know, he has, she has a stolen shovel. Like the way that that scene plays, though, um, it doesn't feel funny. And I'm not sure, having never seen it with an audience, how these scenes play. And I think that being only one person I, uh, who've only, who's only ever seen it alone. I can't tell sometimes the tone of some of the sequences. Also, um, her sequences at her home, which I think are crucial. Uh, the home is really interesting. And I think when Harold enters it, he's suitably impressed because uh, it is quite remarkable. There's a few moments in that scene I really love where it, the camera cuts to shots from quite far away where you can't even tell what's going on. The characters are obscured by the sculpture or they're obscured in general. And you don't have any sense of where that shot is relative to the shot you just saw. And they're in the middle of dialogue scenes. It's just that they cut to these wider angles that just kind of distance you from everything a bit. And I think those are, are really quite environmentally interesting. Uh, but I, I, she will go on. I think, I think if there's one sequence that for me identifies why I, I, struggle is the sequence when she um sings okay <laughs> she, sings cat, yeah. she sings the cat stevens song which um one of the two that was written for the film 
Do you right. want to sing out, sing out? Which is crucial to, to the film's themes and message. Um, I don't know if that scene might be taking it too far from where my mood lies to have her just teach him, teach, have her teach him, not even really, like let him join in without any explanation, just saying join in while I'm singing, which is near impossible to do. And he manages it. Uh, he manages it because Bud Court knows the words is why. Um, and yeah. it turns out at the end that it's some sort of player piano or she's not actually playing. But the thing is, this, right. She gets up and dances the around, the and the piano is, just keeps going. Right. Exactly. The song is um is quite quite clumsily performed in a way compared to say just listening to the Cat Stevens recording, which we get to hear. And I'm only annoyed watching it. Um, and I don't just mean that Ruth Gordon should have sung it better, or the piano player piano should have sounded nicer. Clearly, though, that's not the point. But that's one of those spots for me that that cloys beyond um my level of enjoyment i like though she says everybody should play music music is the way we call communicate it's like the, our natural thing to do and she gives them that banjo to learn and i think that a character giving someone a banjo to learn should be the most <laughs> twee annoying thing and it is actually i think that's one of the loveliest right. things in the movie if it were remade of, today it would be a ukulele so instead of a banjo right. <laughs> ukulele. ukulele absolutely um, I don't entirely understand why. Maybe I don't know if there was a different cultural understanding of the banjo at the time. Why he almost says banjo in one scene and then says harmonica um, when he's someone's asking about music. He says, oh, "I'm learning the bet, the harmonica." I don't really know what that means. So, if anybody has a thought on why he retracts banjo in that moment, maybe he just wanted to keep it private. But clearly, the banjo becomes the end when he does the quadrophenia twist and mm -hmm. turns out to be on the cliff and then dances away. Um, which is also a bit much. I think that we, being manipulated is, is maybe my concern. And moments like that are intentionally manipulating and or moments that are so insistent that that they could only provoke a reaction. And I think my other, the singing is the one moment. And the other moment of the film that that really rubs me the wrong way, besides the, the um, tattoo, which is just like, it's so, it does to me, it should just be gone from the film. Well, uh, and can I argue never... against that? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, I want to let William finish and then, and then I rebuttal. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. I, I, um, I'm, and then I'll, I'll wait for see what you say, because my take is just that I'm like, this is uh, offensive or in bad taste. So you might have a real reason and I'll, be, I'll appreciate hearing it. But the, um, the moment I, I dislike this just from a filmmaking perspective is, of course, I, I just dislike her decision to kill herself, which for the character to come to that point, which also... She says earlier her birthday is going to be like Saturday and then that's like the whole movie happens and then her birthday happens. So it either is a magical non-time or the film really does happen in just a few days. Because um, it seems like from the dialogue, it would only happen within a week. But that's magical, yeah, I, I, right? That's, that's what I see it. It's a, it's a, it's a week-long kind of transformational right. process that Harold goes through. Right? Whereas I think when you watch it, it's like this feels like it's weeks just because you're getting all these montages and everything, but I guess he's got the time and the money. So the thing I hate about that, about that, <laughs> that, about that scene is she says, yes, I've taken the pills. I'll be gone by midnight. And Harold screams what? And there's the hard cut to the sirens and that like half a second of the screaming, what, which is 
when that scene ends that way and cuts right to the hospital sort of montage with the music, I, I feel so like punched in a way that I, I don't like, a, I don't want a film to do to me. And I think that it's such an indelicate way to handle the, the, this, this Hail Mary pass they're making in the script at the very end that we have to accept that this is the fitting way for these themes to resolve themselves. Because again, I can't see her as a character. I see her as, I see her as like a ephemeral theme that comes into the movie and then leaves the movie. And for that moment to be so brutal and for the cut to be so jarring and to not allow you to hear the conversation that would have followed the what to not allow us to see, like, I think that we, we would have benefited from something a little less cinematic and stylized at that moment, because the cat Stevens and the lack of dialogue and the hard cut from the screaming to the sirens feels like a bandaid feels like, like, I, like glossing up where I want more movie to happen. And truly when that moment happened, I'm like, the movie's over now. That's it. Like that's the end of the movie. And I was shocked at the, I mean, it's not a long film, but it didn't feel like we had gotten anywhere. And, um, and that whatever mods through line is supposed to be, that scene should, is her last scene. I mean, not, I mean, I guess her on, on a gurney going into um, maybe try to be saved, but um, that, that last scene when, she ruins their dinner that way. It's, it doesn't, it, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. happy birthday. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. and, and, not, and it makes no sense to me. And I think the film could have fixed it. If it found, if that transition to this melancholic cat Stevens accompanied hospital sequence, which is meant to be tear jerking and affecting, I think, and meant to the trouble song there. Catharsis, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, it just feels like bad natured in a way that it isn't, but it doesn't feel, and it's not the kind of it, like pain, the film hurting you isn't, I feel like I, I'm making an argument that is easily argued against. And I'm happy to hear those arguments <laughs> because I, I just hate the, I hate the way that that feels, that that moment feels, it doesn't feel right. And it, it's, yeah, too, well, it's too hard. It's too hard well, to I, slap. I, I think, you, I think you've built a, a, a very plausible case and maybe even a persuasive case. Uh, maybe there's listeners out there who, um, you know, resonate with what you're saying, but I, I think there are some rebuttals that, that maybe one of the So Brad, I know <laughs> yeah, you'd already well, kind if, of, if I, if I, go ahead. If I yeah. go, before, sorry, before, before I finish, yeah. I, I wanted to yeah, mention one other sure. thing, okay. which is that um, you had mentioned David in leading into asking me about this, about how mm -hmm. this character is not unique in, in cinema. Right. But it's if like if I if, if if I can just be that guy, I get more of an enjoyment seeing the way that Barbara Streisand makes Ryan O'Neill grow in What's Up Doc. Like I think that relationship makes more sense to me than Harold and Maude, and I laugh more at it and I cry more at it. Am I, is that strange? Am I weird? Because What's Up Doc to me is a more emotionally fulfilling experience than Harold and Maude. I might be very unusual, but maybe I just like my girls. <laughs> acting like bugs bunny i don't know <laughs> well we'll 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 get to what's up doc in the season four so hold that thought <laughs> yeah next year yeah i gotta join in, in that conversation <laughs> absolutely i love what's up doc i'll join in too sure 
So, Brad, you want to go ahead and, and uh, give us a little bit of thoughts? I mean, if you want to start with the tattoo or uh, maybe some other, I know we'll certainly give Derek and, and Mark a chance to jump in on this too. Sure. Um, I mean, well, first of all, What's Up Doc is like a very different movie than Harold and Maude, so oh, that yeah. should be said. Yeah. Um, see, my my read of this, I think, is uh, of Maude, I think, is is uh, different than yours, William. Um, and and I understand, like, I understand the pushback against uh, like tweed ideas, and um, I think lesser filmmakers. Uh, take tweed as sort of like I'm painting on cork, even though there's no uh, philosophy behind it. There's no reasoning behind it. It's sort of it, you mentioned Garden State. Right? I haven't seen Garden State, but but I know the type of film that you you're talking about. So like to just make things quirky for the sake of quirk rather than having any sort of uh, reason for it. But I I don't think Hal Ashby falls into that trap at all. And in fact, I think it's the exact opposite. Um, you, you taught, you said how, uh, everything that Maude does in the film's climax, uh, sort of comes out of a, like a left field, like a rushed idea. But I mean, my interpretation, like, I, I think that that climax is the inevitability of her actions throughout the entire movie. Maude is someone who, from the very beginning, has already more than one foot out the door, like the the idea, as as I gather it, is that she's going to kill herself on her 80th birthday, and it really doesn't matter what happened to her in the week before. And her adventures with Harold are are for me less about um, her fulfilling everything that Harold needs to, uh, you know, come of age and rebel and get out of out of uh, his his mother's, you know bird his mother's control and instead it's more that she's sort of just kind of using him i mean not not maliciously using him but he is just sort of something that she's doing for lack of a better term for during this this one week before she decides to kill herself she says often over and over throughout the movie don't get attached to things getting attached is is the problem people come people go it doesn't mean anything um, and I and I think uh, connecting that to her tattoo is 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 a kind of a genius stroke for me. Um, Hal Ashby through this film and through most of uh, the two films that I've seen of his is really good at at dropping things and not commenting on them and knowing that and and, and trusting us to uh, be smart enough to sort of develop a whole a whole history backstory, a whole other aspect of this film without him having to really draw it out. And that tattoo for me is one of the biggest elements of this film. When you when you discover that Maude is a Holocaust survivor, all of a sudden her story completes itself from the horrors that she would no doubt have seen um, in the concentration camp done by the Nazis in the Second World War to when she came to America, got married, it's her doctor husband, um, and the two of them sound like they were fierce political activists uh, against the kind of things that Harold himself is, in, is, is born into, the, the wealthy upper class, the military uncle, all of these sorts of things that she would have had not only seen uh, during the rise of Nazism um, 
in in the Second World War, but also seen parallels here in in the nineteen seventies America. And um, I think that after the husband dies, that 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 monologue that she gives when he asks about her umbrellas or something, it's something on the wall, and then she talks about all the protests and stuff like that. Is that you? You get this full picture of this woman who has lived this entire life, has seen a lot of death and a lot of struggle, and is just sort of decided for herself, come what may, the 80th year, the 80th, the day of the 80th birthday, I'm ending it all. Um, and her suicide in the climax contrasts greatly with everything that Harold goes through. Um, Harold's, uh, the explosion in the, the school where everyone thinks Harold's dead, but Harold isn't, is then becomes Harold's ridiculous fake suicides, where all of the sudden you have someone that you really care about actually committing suicide. And that sheds an entirely different light on, on everything that Harold has been doing mm -hmm. with his uh, trying to you know shock his mother, trying to shock these the internet girlfriends all that kind of thing um and, and puts the the it puts it all in it for me in a different light and i think and even taking it one step further to that very last scene where harold is now committing or, or might commit suicide and not for the first time in the film we suspect that might that might actually be uh the case and because harold for the first time we think harold himself is thinking that this might be the case and that that twist at the end, um, we can spoil, right? That yeah, that ahead, he yeah. is he is faking his own death permanently, so that nobody thinks that he's alive anymore, and he's just going to walk off with a banjo. Um, I, I for so for me, that's my that's my read of of Harold and Maude, I guess, of the relationship between the two, and and why this film is so much. Um, about, as I say, there's a time to live and there's a time to die, right? And it's so much about um, how death and, and, and specifically suicide um, intersects our lives without us um, sometimes being, being consciously aware. Hey, Brad, you're so smart. <laughs> Yeah, I no, love that. Very well I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I agree. I agree with everything you just said, which is great because. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I no, totally like, love, and love you and respect you, William. And you can totally. I like debating with you absolutely. So. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the thing, and the thing is, I I, I think that um, what's what, what gratified me is that the thing I hate the most is just the way the scene is played that you didn't have any debate about. So that means you agree with me there, and I appreciate that you agree that the scene uh, should, is bad. Uh, no, but I sorry I you totally cut off. Totally you you cut out for me when you said that. What did you say? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Um, but yeah, I think that that everything you just said makes total sense, and I will go in. We'll go into every time I think about this movie ever again. So, Aww. so that's good. That's exactly what I asked for when we started. I'm like, I just don't see like where this is now. I will admit, everything you just described, I think, is so wonderful on and say like on the script level, on the paper level that maybe in watching the film, I don't, I feel like a lot of the, the quirkiness and the visuals and the performances, particularly Ruth Gordon's get, maybe get in the way for me currently where I'm at now, get in the way with the great things the film is doing that you have so clearly laid out. And I wonder if I would like the film better if I read the screenplay, maybe I can do that and then like kind of feel it in my head and then watch it again and then see what I get. Because sometimes you hear lines, but you don't hear them, you know, like you, you need to feel the lines 
to read it or see it so many times that you can kind of see through what the film's doing on its face to sort of get deeper into it. And I think that you just got me a little level deeper than, than I was before. So Aww. I appreciate that. Do, do you um, watch films with, even in English films, do you watch them with subtitles on or, or no? Often, often, yes, yes. Mm. And, and I always find that, that that completely changes the way I would, I would read the script because you can just send, see, like imagine that, imagine that that text was on the paper. She right. a multitude of ways to read the scene. And I mean, that, that's why I, I think I love Vivian Pickle so much is because she took what was on the text for her. Like she took the text and made it exactly what I like. So, and um, I, I other, agree with other... you. She is kind of like the MVP unsung hero of this film. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that for me, I, I will, what you just said, in spite of the fact that you, you laid a really beautiful case for what Maud is as a human and how her life is full of her experiences and that, that I guess she, she just happened to keep seeing this guy at the funerals in her last week and went, I got to hang out with this guy. He seems like yeah. a really cool guy to hang out with. Like all of that makes sense as her as a person. I still think though that, everything you said also shows the way in which she does function as, um, as a thematic device for Harold's growth. Not that it, it, in a way that's more legitimate and not cheap anymore for me, if that makes sense that oh, for, for what you said, what you said about her, her suicide and how that suicide relates to his journey and, and the way that um, he's treated that particular, almost quite flippantly treated that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, how that, that, causes a resolve at the end uh i wish the scream didn't lead to sirens but i still like i still like thematically how that all makes sense and um perhaps if i can have one other thing i wish the film then didn't do because now that i agree with you i have a new complaint is that (laughs) it's weird it's 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 weird then it's weird then that she would sleep with him and like fall in love with him and i wonder if if everything given everything you just said if the relationship might have benefited from being slightly more one-sided that like it's that if it is romantic, it's more from him than from her because if but she's going to die. Oh yeah, I think I think yeah, he's oh, totally definitely, no, definitely, falling definitely. for her. Right yeah. Now. Yes, right. I think I think that's true. But even even less, like I, if if there's one thing one shouldn't do, it's like sleep with someone who's twenty when you know you're going to die that week. Like that's you're going to fuck with their brain. Now I think the movie doesn't treat that even treat that literally in a way because of how you've just sort of laid it out, and that her lifestyle and everything she said does completely, I mean, she is explicit. Like I'm not going like, to, it makes total sense that she's going to die at this point. You get the impression from that scene and why he screams what, and the siren scream is he doesn't believe that he, he believes that the love they've had in these last few days would have then changed her mind the way that it's changed his mind. And well, that's just because he's young I and want, naive and doesn't really understand right, and the I, ways of the world. Right. Per, per, Perhaps I wish that the film then unpacked that because his disbelief that she'd do it, his response is what? Not sadness. It's like anger at first. Like, how could you do this when look at what we've just built? And I built this beautiful future for us that we're going to have. And from that point on, there isn't really any more dialogue in the film. There's sporadic lines in the hospital, and then it sort of winds down to the conclusion. Um, So I kind of think that there's something in there that, that the film could have unpacked. And I wonder then maybe that's something that the audience is really left to unpack with regard to like Harold's um, disbelief at her suicide. The resolution of it has to happen very much in Bud Court's performance and in the Cat Stevens music and in driving sequence. Like it has to kind of happen for us. And that's good because mm-hmm. it's good to show, right? It's good to show what's happening and not 
tell it out, but it is still very complicated. So maybe my discomfort with that moment was that it was denying me like the psychological unpacking that I wanted from that moment. And this is all stuff that I've never really realized about it, that like your explanation made me realize why I didn't like the moment I was talking about. Mm. So Mm. now I kind of get why I don't like it. And maybe I can lean into that discomfort the next time I watch it. And that's usually my technique nowadays is if I didn't care about the aspect of the film, the next time I see it, I just go in going, I'm going to care about that aspect the most. And then just see if I can like, Stockholm syndrome myself, so to speak, <laughs> but like to get into it, like to be like, no, this is then the thing I'm wrestling with deserved to be wrestled with. And I might come out on the other side um, with a greater love for it than I might have had if I liked it just to start with. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I did see that growth happening uh, non-verbally in, in Harold as he's processing this. I thought the the editing of the hospital sequence and the driving sequence sort of intercutting back and forth was really pretty brilliant because Agreed. just having one hospital sequence and then having him driving in sort of in that order, then uh, that, that actually was part of the original work print version which was like over three hours long and so ashby really had to hack it down to basically an hour and a half yeah well i don't know that it even exists but i i really feel like the efficiency i don't release the work print (laughs) right right and i think i think the 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 efficiency of that and and allowing harold's sort of visuals just his face i i see a lot of processing going on i think i see Hmm. he's absorbing some of maud's philosophy of life which I'll get into in a little bit. I want to give either Mark or Derek or both of you a chance to respond to any of this. There's been a lot thrown out there. Uh, let's talk about mod. <laughs> I'll I'll, uh, I'll jump in. I guess I guess if um, if Brad is the thesis and William is the antithesis or the other way around, I guess maybe I'm the synthesis. Perhaps there you go. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I guess I I can I can understand the not repulsion, but just the, the kind of being put off by Maude because she does come off as incredibly carefree to the point of being ridiculous and unbelievable. Like, like her, her thwarting the police officer that, that would not really fly all that well. I mean, you got, I mean, you gotta be, there's, there's gotta be like a lot of, there's like a big suspension of disbelief on there. And, and yeah, and I can, I can see her, being accused as as being like a manic pixie girl and and i think it's more because if if it were handled by a lesser filmmaker it would come off as as incredibly cloying and 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 yes i would agree that the like her singing um her singing at the piano is is probably a, a very cloying one it actually reminds me of what puts me off of the deer hunter the parts of the deer hunter i like are the ones are the moments where people are just are allowed to be and they're they can just kind of be themselves and not trying to tell a story but when they are trying to tell a story it, it just it just feels so obvious that they're hammering this point in i noticed this in the first act especially like there's a lot of just very natural moments but then all of a sudden you get these these exchanges like between Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken, they're just like, obviously, Oh, this is hammering over the theme or this is setting up something that's going to be paid off later. And it's just done so clunkily clunkily that it just kind of is off putting the same thing here. I, I feel, I feel like the, that piano scene was, was very, it, it was just kind of clunkily delivered, but yet 
the moment where Harold reveals the incident at, at his boarding school and what prompted him to do the fake. So that I feel like was, was a, was a genuine moment. And him in the back of the ambulance actually is, is another genuine moment. And even them watching the sunset is, is feels like a genuine moment because it wasn't trying to, it wasn't trying to force anything. It was just, it was just a moment that was allowed to be. And I think that's really the, the big takeaway from Harold is, is, is that it's okay to be. And, and I think that's why he felt comfortable exposing himself like that is because, you know, she's she's comfortable in her own skin. You know, I, I can be comfortable in my own skin and screw everybody else. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I can see the I, I can see what being put off by it. But but I think this is done with a bit more care and a bit more empathy than than others would have would have handled this kind of material. And I, th- I think it helps to be a bit of an outsider and a bit of unusual character yourself. And, and in the end, I've, I've come away thinking that, you know, if you're going to have unusual characters, it, you got to expect an unusual story. So, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. Okay. So Mark, why don't you give us your kind of, what's your take on Maud? Uh, what did her character do for you as far as, uh, making this one of your top 10 of films of all time? Well, um, what I thought was kind of interesting, um, I still think this is Ashby's film, and so uh, both Harold and Maud are aspects of Ashby. Mm. Um, I think Harold, maybe in actions and, and the outrageousness of what he does and the creativity and uh, odd behavior uh, that he does uh, to rebel against his mother. And then um, I also see Maud as uh, sort of an anti-establishment character as well, another aspect of Ashby again. Uh, and uh, you mentioned uh, the original cut of the film was over three hours long. Uh, a lot of that was Maud's pontification and lengthy speeches. Right. Uh, it, would've, it would have been a completely different film if all of that had been left in. Uh, the uh, the producer, one of the producers of the film, Charles uh, Mulvihill, who does uh, one of the commentaries, mm-hmm. one of the commentary tracks on the disc, uh, mentions that uh, even though they cut out 90 minutes, uh, they still didn't lose a single scene. All they lost was dialogue, and a lot of that dialogue was Maud's dialogue. Uh, And so it was trimmed beautifully, edited beautifully, I thought. Um, And uh, another thing that hasn't been mentioned at all so far is uh, some of the uh, other editing choices uh, that I thought were outstanding, like the the transition from the daisy field to the cemetery. Agreed. Gravestones. Uh, It's a great anti-war image. Um, and, and so Ashby got that into this as well. Uh, some of the issues that he had with authority, the police are portrayed as very rigid and not particularly bright. Uh, they're without personality, really. Um, Tom Skerritt, for example, an early Tom Skerritt role. Um, Skerritt uh, became a friend of Ashby's, and uh, so he, he plays kind of the bumbling uh, cop. And, uh, and so I, I just thought that was interesting, too. And just... Uh, there's so much of the film that you can just see so many different things every time you watch it uh, and not realize, not not just in in the scenes, but in the tone as well. And you, and now tonight we're kind of focusing more on uh, on some of the uh, not the humor as much, uh, but some of the, the sadder uh, aspects, uh, at least of the relationship. And, and I don't always look at it so much as a relationship film, but just, I look at it more as Ashby, uh, doing what he does best and bringing out the, the odd humor. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I still, I, I find it extremely 
humorous, but also uh, the fact that it's more than just a black comedy. Uh, it, it has so much more going for it. Yeah, yeah. These are these these pranks that whether it's the macabre side of of the suicide attempts or or the you know the brutality, even if you will, of, of how Harold uh, sort of terrorizes these young women who you know they're all set up. Think, wow, I'm going to date this rich young bachelor, and they drive up to the house and they're thinking, oh, this could be pretty special here, <laughs> and they're they're sent off screaming or at least shaking their head, wondering what was that all about. Uh, there, there's a, a deeper point to it. It's it's just not being outrageous and shocking just for the the sake of you know throwing people off balance there. And and I guess that's where we get into Maud's philosophy of life, which I think is kind of a, it's kind of a, a hippie flower child way of looking at things, even though her life experience uh, doesn't really put her into that demographic, nor does Harold's. I mean, you know, the, but there is kind of that, that hippie Aquarian uh, do your own thing. It's all groovy. It's all kind of like part of the big circle of life you know we come we go let's just not get attached to material things i mean that's very much as i think brad already said this is a film of its time and and sort of giving voice to a particular ethos but it's not you know just long-haired shaggy hippies you know the daisies certainly kind of fit some of that aesthetic um and and there's even a just sort of a little bit of a you know, kind of a Zen understanding, you know, that we're sort of all flowers in this field, but we're individuals, but we're all kind of, you know, easy come, easy go in a certain way. And I think the the fact that she's um, sort of just going through this last week of her life, especially on the rewatch, you, you recognize very clearly when she says, you know, it'll all be over soon. And, you know, you know, isn't 80 a good time to go out 75 is too young but by 85 you're just marking time i mean she's very much foreshadowing the fact that this is a plan and once you understand that this is kind of her own chosen destiny harold is just kind of like her last encounter she's just he's a passenger that she's picked up along the way she kind of has this outcome in mind uh, and she sees a chance to do a little bit of transformative work as maybe her last grand gesture but it's not going to change uh, the outcome for her um, maybe she recognizes in some sort of karmic sense that she's going to give him an experience that will snap him out of this doldrums i mean she she sees some kind of potential in him but she also recognizes he's been squandering it like he doesn't play music he doesn't have friends um she's going to funerals kind of scoping out the territory because that's where she's going to be heading very soon she wonders why is this young man so preoccupied with death but she doesn't chastise him for it she's not you know um trying to uh mock or demean him in any way but i think she's aware of some of the deficiencies of of this path that he's on and she is kind of opening up some new vistas for him and and getting him to re-examine some of the things that he's taken for granted and maybe consider uh perspectives that he he has not really thought through before. I mean, even the, the, you know, the symbolic act of taking this tree from out of the city and back to nature. I mean, that's very much a kind of a, a hippie new age flower child kind of a thing to do. And, and I, so to me, I think that's another part of the appeal of this film is that people who, 
maybe identify positively with some aspect of this outlook on life would say, yeah, this is kind of, these are my ideals kind of being given full voice in the, um, you know, through the, through the, uh, personality of this kind of unusual character. Um, I, I, and I, and I think, you know, Ruth Gordon's spunky spry energy may seem a little derivative or a little, um, you know, exaggerated, uh, I, I kind of thought of, of little Edie and gray gardens as another kind of personality <laughs> along yes. that line. Uh, this kind of woman who's been kind of beaten down by life, but she's not going to let it knock her down. Ultimately uh, she's got, she's got something to say and, and, you know, older women are not always taken real seriously in our society. Um, and yet she's got a pretty profound uh, outlook on things. And I, and I, I do feel like that's what makes her a, a pretty winsome uh, and appealing character. So yeah, that's my take on Maud. So yeah, are there any other aspects of the film before we start getting into some of the, you know, maybe more behind the scenes stuff? Uh, we, have we pretty well discussed the, the, the main guts of Harold and Maude? Um, I didn't know if we, we should say a word about Cat Stevens. Well, yeah, I think the music is definitely a big piece of it. I also want to talk about Colin Higgins, the screenwriter, and his story. But let's just go ahead and get into Cat Stevens. I mean, uh, you know, he was a pretty big star. And again, this is a very another very sort of happy coincidence. Uh, Hal Ashby was turned on to his music, got Cat Stevens to compose a couple of songs that were actually just submitted as demos, even though that's what made it into the final cut of the film, because Cat's uh, career was really taking off. Uh, T for the Tillerman was a pretty massive album. I was a little bit more of a teaser in the Firecat guy, but I, you know, I remember as a kid, I was like... Uh, nine ten years old at this time but you know we had the cat stevens eight tracks and listened to him for many years after this but you know really uh seize the moment there uh, getting some of his uh you know really good early work into the soundtrack besides the two other originals that were composed for this film and were never released on disc until sometime in the late 80s i guess uh, because he never got the chance to polish them up and produce them the way that he maybe had envisioned but i think they work pretty effectively just as you know, kind of acoustic, uh, you know, like I say, demos. Um, I, I, I think his music was an outstanding uh, part of the atmospherics of this film and certainly, you know, pretty popular appeal. He's, he's a great performer and uh, I, the simplicity of his lyrics, I think, was also, um, you know, disarmingly profound in, in its own way. Uh, he captures some pretty big ideas and, and, you know, pretty simple language. Did you want to say more about that, Brad, or Cat um, Stevens in general? I, yeah, I don't. I'm not a. I don't know Cat Stevens very well. Um, there's maybe one or two songs that I have heard of his just before in pop culture, but I, I'm not uh, 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 th- uh, very uh, well versed in him. Okay. Um, but I, I did want to say just that um, his music in this film, uh, for me, it sort of works the same way I think like Leonard Cohen's music works for McCabe and Mrs. Yeah, Miller. It's just, much. it's, they're very, uh, um, you can't separate the two. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, really, uh, wonderful when you, when you get a film that works like that, where, where the, uh, the music, uh, it's, uh, by like an artist who's singing with lyrics and everything, not just a, a necessarily a score on its own, um, when it, it, it's so of its own 
and it seems to be working in tandem with the visuals. Like they, they're both their own entities and they're working towards the same goal, even though they feel like there's their, their own worlds sort of inside the music and their own worlds inside the visuals itself. If that yeah. makes any sense. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's, it's just really nice how it fell together. Cause I think, I think they were just playing cat Stevens songs in the editing process. And it's like, Oh yeah, this one would fit yeah. pretty good there. So it was just kind of a happy synchronicity. Go ahead, Derek. I was just going to say, that's the other reason to call this, um, to call this film, the graduate for social misfits, because you know, just like, just like, <laughs> yeah. just like Simon and Garfunkel, the graduate, yep. you have cat Stevens for mm-hmm. Harold and Maude. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, anybody else? I mean, yeah, to me, Cat Stevens, I it probably, you know, well, he converted to Islam in the in the mid 80s, uh, was kind of went silent for a long time, was actually very critical of his own music, and then kind of had a later in life reconciliation with his own past. Uh, but this was kind of the, the dawn of the singer songwriter, uh, not just the Bob Dylans, uh, or even Leonard Cohen's, but you know, people who like James Taylor, uh, you know, Tulane Blacktop, notwithstanding, you know, they, they were kind of crooners who could craft a, a pretty slick pop tune, but had a little bit of depth and message to them. You know, John Denver even comes to mind and from a pretty different tradition. But, uh, you know, the, the Cat Stevens was a pretty much a, a, a superstar, I would say, at this point. He was, he was a pretty big force and very frequently heard on the radio. Can you think of very many other films, uh, at least of that time? I mean, you don't you don't hear it at all, you know, today's uh, cinema of uh, one artist sort of carrying an entire soundtrack the the way that it happened yeah. this point, and The Graduate with Simon and Garfunkel. Um, Amy Mann and Magnolia is the one that comes to mind right off yeah, the bat. There, yeah. yeah, yeah, and um, Lost in Translation, and mm-hmm. uh, is it Air? Is that the band? No, um, Air would be for. Um, the Virgin Suicide. Virgin Suicides. But, oh, yeah. Virgin Suicide. Translation used uh, Kevin Shields from Michael oh, right. Valentine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but those are those are movies that have got some years on them. You know, right. <laughs> they're yeah. not doing that as much on either. Yeah, now nowadays it's it's you know Wes Anderson even his oldies soundtracks. You know, all of that. You know, so yeah, Cat Stevens, great a great contribution here. Um, Let's talk about Colin Higgins. Very interesting is that he gets a he gets a screen or a, a cover credit. Not now. There's a lot of great screenplays that have been you know written for Criterion Collection films, but you don't often see the screenwriter given a, a, a name credit right on the front cover. Uh, on the waterfront has it. Okay. Yeah, and I think there may be a couple others, but it but it does kind of um, yeah, know, it is kind, kind of, of a raise a question. Sure. What what about Colin Higgins? Uh, you know, merits that type of extra attention. I mean, it might just be a licensing thing as well. It could but that's it, part that's, of the contract? Could be. I, he's an interesting character. Um, he, you know, was literally a pool boy <laughs> for. Uh, I think was it not? It wasn't. It wasn't Robert Evans, but he was. It was a different producer. Oh, it was. Uh, um... his, uh, I know. I know it's Mildred Lewis, but but her but her husband. Yeah, uh, frankly, right. Lewis, I think. So. Okay. Right, so he was hired to to be a pool boy and to uh, transport their teenage daughter to high school, and he didn't know at the time he he was a student at UCLA in the screenwriting and and production, um, you know, program there to be a you know a film major and all of that. Uh, he didn't know that he was getting a job with a, pro- a producer. He just needed a steady income, and they also gave him a place to stay. They had little 
you know, uh, cabana or whatever in, in the uh, in the back of the property. So he got to live there and and made some money and got some connections. Um, he went on to do some other things that were of some stature, and that kind of slips my mind. Anybody want nine to, to five? Nine to five. Yes, foul yeah. play. Foul play was the other and one. foul play, right? And was he involved in Silver Streak as well? I think that's another pretty big commercial. Yes of the time did so you, yeah, the, yeah did you did you hear about the the respective the sequel but for harold and maude and yeah his character in silver streak yeah yeah but <laughs> but, the, but i like the thought you could have a silver streak harold and maude mashup where <laughs> yes. where uh-huh. it's all it's all about like car thefts like i that call higgins i mean right. that's also a guy who makes a movie that ends at a production of the mikado i think foul play is pretty bad but i to see those doily cart <laughs> costumes this guy's good in my book you know yeah cool no movie. i think it's an interesting story he he died of aids and uh kind of the late 1980s so there's a there's a tragic element to his story and and uh, it may be that he's got a bit more of a following or a maybe a reputation than than i was aware of and but you're right brett it could just be that the deal is that he gets a, a cover credit but i don't know i mean because i've seen other dvds of harold and maude that preceded this one i think you might have mentioned that one uh, with kind of the fuzzy zoomed up uh, image one, there yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm not sure does 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 colin higgins appear on his name no. on the cover there no so no, i think it might be more of an editorial choice on criterion's part that they wanted to kind of give this guy some props and and you know the fact that this was kind of his uh i think one of his senior projects you know he wrote the story out managed to turn it into a, a successful screenplay was actually you know uh, given at least an opportunity in name to to possibly direct it, but you know he really wasn't ready for that type of a project yet. Go ahead. Yep. And um, did he film the opening that 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 opening shot? Because in in the the yeah. special features uh, there, the interview with uh, the AFI or whatever it is, he talks about that shot and yeah, the, I think- with Harold's feet and the dangling and stuff. I think that was a, a, it was one of his senior projects was to actually shoot that scene. I don't think that his version is what made it to the final film. But no, it, no yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. That right. I think he actually made filmed that opening shot as like a yeah. short film. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I think it's a nice tribute to this guy, and and uh, you know, certainly went on to have a, a pretty significant career. I still find it pretty remarkable that of all the different screenwriters out there, he kind of you know gets the little perk <laughs> so uh yeah. Um, yeah i mean you're right he w- he was originally going to direct the film he wanted to direct the film mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then paramount had him do a test and uh so he he did do a, a scene or two and uh i guess basically failed the test uh so th- they ended up with ashby and what's interesting for me is uh, i found a parallel there between ashby became the mentor for Colin Higgins the same mm-hmm. way that Jewison became a mentor for Ashby. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a, a nice club to belong to, you know. You just help each other out and kind of get them advanced on their career. I think I think I remember the anecdote that Higgins said is that he wanted to show them that he could work really fast. So I think he he filmed like two or three scenes in his little, you know, audition if you will. Uh scenes that of course he had already you know written out and and had a vision for how they would go but in his uh desire to show off his efficiency they didn't turn out very well (laughs) and so he kind of blew his own chance but i think it it may be a a, a, more of a formality that he 
wasn't really destined to be the director of this film, uh, but they at least gave him the shot at it. But the fact that the studio had originally embraced this movie and really had given it a pretty significant support. It wasn't a big budget production, but they gave Ashby a lot of leeway. Uh, Ashby filmed it up in the Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area, partly because he wanted the, the some of those locations, but also he wanted to get out of Los Angeles, out of the Hollywood or orbit there so that he would have a little bit more autonomy and freedom. Uh, and so, the, you know, this this book that I have mentioned, um, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's got a lot of good behind-the-scenes stories, and, and you definitely feel like this film played a very special part in the lives of a lot of people who were associated with it. And so I guess I do want to talk just a little bit about uh, how, how the movie's stature has grown especially given the fact that it was kind of a, a pretty noted flop upon first release i think it it had a very quick uh, shutdown i had already mentioned how all of the uh, theaters had been booked for the godfather uh, this was a holiday epic that was up against like there was a new james bond movie and there was some other pretty stiff competition and this is not the type of film that maybe is going to go out there at holiday time. I mean, yeah, just imagine bringing the the whole family to see Harold and Maude. It just may not go over <laughs> too well. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine that. Now there might be some families that this would be wonderful entertainment. And the, and the film I think has grown to the point where it is beloved. I think Criterion even uses that word in their kind of um, promotional text there on the back cover. Uh, what are some thoughts that people have as to why this film created that type of loyalty i think you know in the 70s and into the 80s there were people who saw this film as i've already said hundreds of times uh back before you could you know rent the vhs and take it home that's what you would do and and there's a theater in minnesota that i think showed it for like 16 months in a row um and and continued to pull audiences for quite a bit of time um yeah, maybe just kind of as we start wrapping things up, what's contributed to that that reverence, that that uh, real embrace that so many audiences have shown it over the years? Well, again, I, th- I think it's like I like I've been jokingly saying this is the graduate for social misfits. So if if you, I think if you're if you're of that bent, you know, just uh, whether it be experiencing melancholia or just having a kind of disillusionment on how life goes uh, or you're kind of, or maybe even looking a way to kind of get out of that disillusionment, the, that film can speak to you. And, and yeah. I think there's also um, we've kind of hinted at this. There, there's definitely a, 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 a strong craft to it. Like uh, I, I know, I know there's been this disparaging on, on the, you know the rich status of of Harold, but you but that house is quite impressive as far as it sure is yeah. as far as production design goes. And again, and as I mentioned before, I could when I saw Harold and the Mob for the first time, I could kind of see where Wes Anderson was taking notes and was was really inspired by that. And I could see echoes of that certainly in in his films. I mean, like yeah, Rushmore in particular. Yeah, yeah especially like, especially yeah. Rushmore. Maybe that's why I have the a, a kind of ambivalence towards. Even though I re, I do really like uh, Harold and Maude, I have ultimately an ambivalence towards it because for me, my coming of age film was Rushmore, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think Wes Anderson did everything for me in that film that 
Harold and Maude just kind of feels like like a retread <laughs> uh, almost. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, not as special. I mean, nice, but not not as not as special as the first time. But uh, but yeah, I think I think yeah, I think it's just the just the just the unique characteristics and it, that it, it it stood out even even at the even at the early seventies when cinema in America was beginning to be more diverse in various ways. I mean, this this one definitely stands out and i think if you're attracted to that kind of thing then that's you know that, that's gonna that's gonna stick with you for a good while mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i i really like um that you mentioned the the production design um and 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 just the way he shoots it like there's a there's a clear through line obviously that that you can see between um the the wealthy house um, also like the psychiatrist's office where we always are just sort of seeing the white wall and we're behind the black chairs. Um, the, <laughs> and how they're the, dressed identically to each other. Yeah. Right yes. down to the handkerchiefs. <laughs> right. um, and, and, and the uncle's uh, military um, <laughs> office. Um, and and the, the montage that reminds me the most of Wes Anderson is when it's cutting between you know uh, I can't, uh, oh the the uncle with uh, at behind his desk with the with the framed picture of Nixon yeah. then it's the th- uh, therapist uh, the psychiatrist behind his desk with the framed picture of Freud then it's the priest behind his desk with the framed picture of the Pope right. that's that's a, you can see where Wes Anderson would really grab all of this. And, and even in, in the, in the, the, the house, there's a lot of symmetry. Um, Harold is often framed under towering portraits of what can, I can only presume to be old ancestors and, and, you know, family, uh, you know, past generations just sort of like leering over top of him. Yeah, the oppressive weight of tradition and expectations and what are you going to make of yourself, young man? All of that. I think that's, you know, anybody who's sort of been brought up under those circumstances, whether those are self-imposed expectations or implied or part of your family's tradition and you just don't want to play that game. I think a lot of people just felt scene <laughs> maybe to use some contemporary language that that this film understands me and i get it and and because that i think especially at the time and and even really throughout um there's not a lot of films like this that maybe connect with people on that you know deeply emotional finally somebody gets it you know somebody can speak it and i can identify with that and not have to explain <laughs> i i think that's really a huge part of the appeal here and I, I wanted to also uh, just mention that he contrasts, uh, just a director's note, that Hal Ashby contrasts all of that in the scenes with Harold and Maude together. Um, the the sym- symmetry and the rigidness is not there. He's much more comfortable in close-ups, in-shot, reverse shots, master scene techniques, things that are a bit more looser and, and sort of very casual types of filmmaking. So I, I think it's great that he applies those philosophies, uh, those sty- two styles of filmmaking in the philosophy of the film itself. Yeah, no, I think I think that's another great, such a great observation. Hal Ashby is a very talented filmmaker. This, it's, mm-hmm. You know, the, the story, the themes, the ideas, the music. Um, you know, we've we have spoken about the editing, but yeah, just there's a lot of really nice touches here, and and I can see 
maybe I'll never watch this movie 150 times in my life, but I can see <laughs> that it does reward revisits. I think I've watched it, you know, three times this week or the last couple of weeks, you know, once just straight up, then with the commentary, then another kind of revisit earlier today. So, you know, I've, I, and I've gotten new things out of it, you know, each time, even watching it in close succession there. So I think, you know, I, I get the picture. And of course I saw it many years ago as well. And, and, a lot of those scenes uh, came back to me pretty quickly. I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that." And it was it was really fun. Uh, of of course, a very nice presentation on Blu-ray. Definitely better image quality than when I saw it on the big screen in a tattered old print uh, uh, midnight movie or whatever it was. And a, and a nice uh, array of supplements and, and features. We talked about Hal Ashby his uh, his. Uh, kind of lecture presentation at the American Film Institute. Very cool because you, know, you see him talking to an audience. So you're getting the audience feedback as part of his discussion. And he's pretty much, you know, literally letting his hair hang down and, and just kind of telling the, you know, telling some pretty cool stories um, about how different aspects of the film fell together. Even that house, you know, that was a, it was a very wealthy estate on, on down on the peninsula, south of San Francisco that had just recently gone on the market. So they were able to work out like a, a week's rental, you know, and had to have some studio, you know, clout to get into, to make that happen. But it was just, again, a beautiful coincidence that this very impressive piece of property with all the art, all the props, furnishings, they were all there. They were just in the house uh, and, and got a chance to film in this really, you know, ornate setting that they would have never had the budget if they had to recreate that as a studio set or something like that. So a lot of cool things fell together to make a pretty magical little piece of film. Hey, um, David. Yeah, go ahead. Before, before we yeah. wrap up, because it seems like we're sure. bringing it there. There's yeah. one other location that we got to shout out, which is the Sutro Baths. Ruins, oh, yeah. yeah. I used to play around there. Yeah. Okay. Did you really? Wow. Oh, I, oh. I, I, yeah, I, absolutely. It's amazing. I, what I love about this is if you double bill it with the lineup, you can see it like in when oh, it's that's actually, right. Yeah, you yeah. See it for real, and then the, this, it's just so mind-boggling to me because to imagine that like right above where they're filming that scene, you know, Eli Wallach was running around doing yeah. those scenes, and like just the fact that they're actually the same location. Yeah, is it's, so remarkable. Oh, I yeah, I used to party out there. We used to just all hang around and just it was a, it's a great spot, you know, um, just to walk around these old ruins and just think about the ghosts of you know who used to play and i mean there was a, a, a an amusement park playland at the beach and this was just kind of the last remnants of it you know stuff that was too big to ultimately destroy and take down uh, the emory the emoryville mud flats as well which is this the place where the the uh the tattoo reveal and that beautiful sunset and the birds and all of that that was a place uh on the east side of the bay emoryville is kind of between um oakland and berkeley uh it's kind of a, a trendy little uh, you know east bay town now but at the time it was just kind of industrial uh kind of drive-by territory uh, my dad used to live in emoryville and he owned a, a trucking company in oakland so i used to go out of the mud flats and and there's a ooh, let's see who's the filmmaker who did that? Um, oh my! I'm blanking out on this name right now. The, the one that Twelve Monkeys is based on. Gosh. Oh, uh, oh Chris, Marker. Chris Marker. Yeah, Chris Marker. Right. I think Chris Marker did a, a short documentary about the sculptures that were were created out it's there. Junktopia. 
Jung, Jungtopia, right? That's yeah, that's, that's Chris that's, Martin. That's right. on that's on the disc uh, for for La Jete and Sans right Soleil. La Jete. That's what I'm trying to think of. Boy, it's it's getting late. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but but you know, so you know, back when I was a teenager in the early '70s, I used to drive. We we drive down the freeway and see what the new stuff was out there. And so they they did a, a cool shot uh, out there in the mud flats. And of course, if you're looking at home, you can see Ashby Avenue, which is a, an off-ramp uh, going into Berkeley. Uh, kind of a cool little you know, trivia note there. Uh, Hal Ashby, of course, being the director there, and Ashby Avenue right there up on the sign. So, <laughs> yeah, I definitely had some fond memories, even going back to some of those San Francisco locations that uh, I, I hung out with myself. All right. Any other details that we want to throw out there before uh, we wind this thing down? I wanted to mention, um, I just thought that Ashby, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize or, or don't give him enough credit for is that he took a lot of uh, gambles on people that were unproven at the time. And one of those was the production designer for this film, Michael Haller, who had only done THX 1138 before he made this. Uh, and a lot of the best ideas, uh, such as the one that Brad mentioned, where uh, the juxtaposition of the priest, the psychiatrist, and the military man uh, with their uh, iconic heroes, the Pope, Freud, and Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was his idea. And and also another one of his great ideas was uh, towards the beginning of the film, when uh, Harold is seeing the psychiatrist, he's dressed as a psychiatrist himself. I, and some people don't catch that, yeah. but I think that's hilarious. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those are those are really fun touches, and yeah, there's just lots of, you know, there's some really appealing stuff there. Again, you know, so it's and, it's, it's, and the, one more thing: the, the mm-hmm. fact that uh, the original actors that were considered to play the part of Harold were Richard Dreyfus, Bob Balaban, and Elton John. Yeah, Elton John. And, that was another. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was going to point out that yeah. there's an alternate future with Elton John not only playing Harold, but I think he was also possibly Provide asked to music. Yeah, to contribute music to it too. And he just well, wasn't into it. <laughs> well, he actually referred him to Cat Stevens. I think he uh-huh, said, "I exactly. can't do it" because Elton had already kind of taken that stage, uh, next stage of, of stardom, and was kind of too big for the film and wasn't really looking to become an actor at that point anyway. So, but I think Elton John was one of the the links that got him into Cat Stevens and I'm sure Cat will always be grateful for the tip there. (laughs) And then to end up going with Bud Court, a guy who had had done a small part in MASH up to that point. He was Um, also in Brewster McCloud, the the Robert Uh Altman film, which is, was that, was that after no, I think that Bruce McCloud was before was McCabe. Be- I think it was just before. Right, right. So, and that's a pretty interesting Bud Court performance. Now, Bud Court, I think he he did not have a a happy relationship with this film for quite a few years. I think he um, he felt a little bit. I don't know what was the what was the story there, but there was a distancing that that took place between him. He didn't like to talk about it. Um, for for quite a few years, would not give any interviews or or do any kind of promotional stuff, even though I think he he was proud of the film. But there was something that, you know, and I'm gonna kicking myself for not having a better recall of that anecdote. But I think um, I did find a more recent interview from a few years ago uh, where he does talk a little bit more uh, in depth about his experience making Harold and Maude. So it seems like he's made some reconciliations there. So. 
All right. Well, I think we've pretty much covered the basics. We're at the two hour mark here. So, um, yeah, guys, thank you so much for your, your, your input tonight. I, I hope listeners have enjoyed this conversation. I, I always do. And I think we did a pretty solid job, uh, covering a film that I know is very meaningful to a lot of folks. So, um, I'm just going to kind of go down the list here. Any, any final comments, thoughts, projects you want to promote or just any you know chit chat checkups uh derek uh, what you got going on uh, or last words on the film i still i still like harold and mod i wouldn't call it my top 10 or everything but i i, I still liked it it was it was great uh, talking with you all and even getting some mm-hmm. more insights and maybe if i revisit this again maybe even soon after this conversation who knows but uh to have some more things to kind of ponder and think about so it was it was, it was a pleasure being here as always Thanks a lot. And Brad, any final thoughts you want to wrap up? I love this film. I, I don't know what else to say about it. Um, uh, it I think it's um, uh, a masterpiece, and I think it's one of the uh, best films of the uh, the New Hollywood movement along there with being there. And um, I, you know, I think I'm going to break open the last detail, the third disc I have. Uh, yeah. And see, see uh, which I've heard is also amazing. Aaron West gave me a really good uh, recommendation to watch it. So uh, that might be next. Yeah, no, Hal Ashby, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy. Pretty important figure. Uh, you know, definitely hit some hard times once the calendar flipped over to the 80s. But uh, he had a really great run of it in the 70s. So uh, I think you'll enjoy what you have to discover there. William? Yeah, it's a good movie. I like it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I feel, feel really, feel <laughs> enthusiasm, really William. Enthusiasm. No, no, it's true. Like, I mean, like, I, I feel like I got exactly what I hoped I'd get out of this conversation. Yeah, and yeah. It was it was fun to um, to listen to everybody's thoughts and hear 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 some intelligent love for the film that is more intelligent than your average letterbox reviewer, who uh, who doesn't doesn't deep dive quite so deep and say a little blurb so it's nice yeah. to have that experience um i uh, got a shout out cinematography is so great um mm-hmm. of this film too so beautiful to look at and speaking of beautiful to look at the criterion artwork for this is tremendous it's really gorgeous isn't it yeah it's, it's nice. i think that for me that i mean when i first saw that they were releasing it and i saw the cover i said well now i finally have to see this because look at that art i didn't realize there'd be so much blood so um, <laughs> I was super excited. I think I'm going to follow Brad. I got my indicator last detail as well. So I'm going to pop that in now. And uh, and also I, I, I got Bound for Glory, which uh, I've been wanting oh, yeah, to see for ages, which is I think the last film of its year for Best Picture I haven't seen. So it'll be nice to, to see that and complete that little cycle. Yeah, thanks and, for uh, bringing that, that one out. in. That's a, that's another really good one. I'd love to get a good disc. I know that there, it was yeah. Twilight Time. I think it's out of print now. Yeah, but So hopefully yeah. someone will find that again and... Um, and get it back in circulation sure well, let's give a name check to the illustrator jordan crane is his name i don't know anything about him but uh he does really nice work maybe i'll find a link in the show notes to kind of give him a little more exposure if people want to see more of what uh, mr crane has to offer and the artwork side of things uh, mark i'll go ahead and give you a last word here as far as your take on the film or any other things that you want to talk about uh a shout out to amy scott who in 2018 she uh, put out a pretty good documentary on Hal Ashby called Hal, uh, which I saw at the film festival in Traverse City that oh, year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was previously an editor, and that's the first and only film she's ever made. And uh, another thing, I wanted to mention my two favorite Maud quotes, 
as my ticket out of here. It's best not to be too moral. You cheat yourself out of too much life. Aim above morality. <laughs> if you apply that to life, you're bound to live it fully. Yeah, and that's... the other one is L-I-B-E, live. <laughs> Otherwise, you got nothing to talk about in the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> With a little wink and nudge there, yeah. No, those are those are great quotes, and they really do, I think, very succinctly um, celebrate and, and capture Maud's zest for life. So, well, thank you, all listeners. Um, I'm going to do one more episode uh, for this season. It's going to be a compendium of all the short films. Uh, that were released during 1971 that have managed to find their way into Criterion Discs. So that'll be fun. Kind of a bunch of short takes uh, on a bunch of shorter films. Um, I also want to kind of give a shout out to a Criterion Cast website. Uh, Josh Brunsting has been doing a really nice job writing up uh, kind of short summaries of films that he's screening through the New York Film Festival. And uh, just wanted to kind of encourage listeners to give them a look. Um, he puts a little trailer that gives a little bit of a, a snippet, a little preview, a little sense of the uh, atmosphere. And there's a lot of international films that he's talking about there, films from China, uh, other parts of Asia, and just, you know, uh, filmmakers, some of the names are familiar, some of them are pretty new to me at least. Uh, but I appreciate his work and definitely want to just direct folks to check out some of the other things that we have to offer on the CriterionCast.com website. And so I'll be coming back with one more episode as we get ready to put 1971 in the rearview mirror. And uh, looking forward to that. It, uh, but it's kind of been kind of an epic journey. I think it's been almost two years that we've been working on season three. Uh, I'm really happy that we were able to you know, wrap up our feature coverage. Uh, again, this has kind of been a nice little party to talk about uh, a fun movie. And I really appreciate you guys uh, keeping me company as we uh, dig into what Harold and Maude had to say to us all. So with that, I'll wrap things up. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Hopefully there's others out there who maybe have a few things they want to say about this film. So look forward to reading your comments and interacting with you online. So until next time, this is David Blakely signing off. Good night. Don't be shy, just let your feelings roll on by. And don't wear fear, or nobody will know you're there. Just lift your head and let your feelings out instead. No, don't be shy, just let your feelings roll on by. On by, 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 on by.